Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode of Bookmarked is brought to you by Libro FM. Get two books for the price of one with your first month of membership using the code BOOKSTACKED. Again, use promo code BOOKSTACKED when you start your membership at Libro.fm. Or check the show notes for a quick link to get started. Offer only valid for new members in the U.S. and Canada. My name is Chelsea Regan, and welcome to the Bookmark Podcast. Today, I'll be talking to Mackenzie Lee, best-selling author of the Montague Sibling series. If you enjoyed The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue and The Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy, then you are going to love her latest book, The Nobleman's Guide to Scandal and Shipwrecks. Little baby Adrian is all grown up and on an adventure of his own getting help from many familiar faces along the way, including two of our favorite siblings. I absolutely love this series. I was so excited to get to read this book, and I am really, really looking forward to asking Mackenzie all about it. So let's get started. Hey, Mackenzie, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled to be here. So to get started, could you give our listeners just a brief introduction to you and the Montague Sibling series? Oh, no. There's three of them now. It's getting harder and harder to do a brief introduction. So I'm Mackenzie. I'm a writer. I write primarily historical fiction and nonfiction. I have a BA in history and an MFA in creative writing with an emphasis in children's and young adult literature. I really love obscure, weird, probably didn't learn it in school kind of history. I also have a book called Bygone Badass Broads, which is all about women in history who you probably don't know about but definitely should. And all the Montague sibling books kind of came out of my want to explore and play around with adventure novel tropes and these sort of classic adventure stories in history featuring characters that don't usually get to be the heroes of those stories. So the first one is about Monty, who is a young bisexual nobleman in the 1700s. He's about to go on his grand tour of Europe with his best friend Percy, who he thinks he has a big secret crush on, but it's secret to him and no one else. And also his sister Felicity, who he thinks is kind of a drip due to Monty's bad decisions. They end up the targets of a manhunt that leads them across 18th century Europe. It's very exciting. And then the next book, they're all kind of more of the same. It's like, if you like one, you'll like them all because it's just more of the same. The second one's about Felicity, about her desire to be a doctor and the men of 18th century England's determination to keep her from being a doctor and the lengths she has to go to to pursue a medical education, including allying herself with two other women from very different places in Europe. And the third one, which is the one we're here to talk about today, is about their youngest brother, Adrian, who is almost 20 years younger than Monty. So the book takes place almost 20 years after Gentleman's Guide, which was a wild and 
pretty unique experience when it comes to writing a series. And Adrian is about to take over his father's title and his estate, going to get a seat in Parliament, and he is very liberal while his father is very, very conservative. And Adrian is struggling. That's just kind of, that could be the full synopsis of the book is Adrian is struggling. He's struggling with anxiety and with really debilitating anxiety and OCD, struggling with how to go against his father's legacy and what that will mean socially for their family, struggling with the death of his mother and trying to solve what he thinks is a mystery related to that, and struggling with the fact that he discovers that he has two siblings nobody ever told him he has. But yet again, more hijinks, more travels, (laughs) ta-da. That was incredible. And yeah, I really think that should be the tagline of the book. Just Adrian struggles. It's, yeah. He's got a rough couple I mean, of weeks. <laughs> yeah, the tagline of the whole series could be hijinks ensue. I love it. I start to talk about these books, and one of my big selling points on these books is always like, they're fun. I wanted them to be fun. I want them to be funny because I think so much historical fiction is just like punishingly sad and about like the worst moments in human history. And so I always make a point to emphasize like, these books are funny. These books are fun. And then I go on to talk about, like, they're also about sexism and alcoholism and abuse and chronic illness, but they're super, super fun. (laughs) It is a wild sell, but, yeah, that's correct. (laughs) All of that's right. And you talked about this a little bit, but I'd love to know a bit more, because the way you built this series is so interesting. Instead of staying with one main character, you gave us a look into each of the siblings' heads, and you gave each of them their own story, which allows us to see them from other perspectives, see different people from different perspectives, but it also allows us to see them at different points in their life. I know that you didn't initially plan for this to be a series, but then sort of once you made that decision, how did you decide to take this specific approach? Yeah, I was going to say, I wish I could pretend like any of that was intentional, but that was more because of poor planning on my part, or maybe not poor planning so much as like unexpected popularity. So the first book in the series was a book that was never supposed to be a book because I had a I had a two book deal with Harper Collins. My first book is called This Monstrous Thing, and it is a steampunk reimagining of Frankenstein. And let me tell you, if you want a niche market, market it only to readers of Frankenstein. And then if you want to narrow it down even more, tell it's steampunk. There were five people who read that book. It failed spectacularly. But they had to publish one more thing that I wrote because they had paid me. So they were like, what do you want to do for your second book? And I was like, I want to write a really sad book about Chicago steel workers in the turn of the century. And everyone's going to be sad and working 24-hour shifts. They're all going to be missing limbs and have cholera, and it's going to be sad. And Harper, I think, had just kind of been like, okay, well, your first one was also weird of me, so just like do whatever you want. But I was, I was really, like, struggling as a human at that point in my life, and I think part of it had come from this big shift in my, in my life and in my career and how I thought about my writing, and writing was something that had been part of me for so long and had just been mine for so long, and now suddenly, as unread as it was, like, my book was out there, and now doing the thing again and writing another book felt really, really backwards, because like before, it had always been, like, write the best thing that you can do and write what you love and then throw it out there and see if it sticks to anything, And now it was, okay, so before you even start, we have an agent involved, we have a publisher involved, we have your sales numbers from your last book involved. And so it it felt like such a backwards process that I was really, really in my head about it. I felt like my first book had failed, and so I was kind of discouraged from the get-go and just really struggling. And shockingly, sad Chicago Steel Mill book didn't, like, put me in a better mood. And I was struggling to write. I was struggling to author. (laughs) I feel like being a writer and being an author are very different things. And I was really struggling with them both. 
And so I started writing something that I told myself, I was like, okay, this is the silliest idea you have. So this silly, silly book is just for you. No joke is too ridiculous. No trope is too ridiculous. You can literally let them listen at keyholes. And there's going to be pirates and there's going to be robbers and there's going to be jokes about hook-handed masturbation. Like anything goes, basically. And I started writing it really like just for me and just to remind myself how to write a book and that this is something I liked doing. And then we hit kind of a critical mass point with the Chicago Steel Mill book where my editor at Harper was like, you either need to rebuild this from the ground up for like the 15th time or we need to think about another project. This is not working. And I didn't have anything else except this weird nonsense book I had been writing. So I sent them the first chapter of the Weird Nonsense book, and that book became Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. So that book, at face value, felt like it shouldn't have existed. And then when it started selling kind of well, Harper approached me and said, would you like to do another one? And I said, yeah, I'd love to write more about Monty and Percy. And they said, no, we'd actually love you to write a book about Felicity. And I said, no, I don't think I want to do that. I don't think I have enough there. Like, she's a minor character. So I, that was the thing is I had, at that point, I had built up Monty and Percy so hugely, even in my own head. And Felicity still was like a secondary character, so it just it didn't feel like there would be enough about her. And I don't think I was as interested. I wanted because I love Monty and I wanted to write about Rascally Monty. And my editor at Harper very smartly was like, "You can try it, and we'll see what happens." And I started writing a Monty and Percy sequel, and then realized that when you remove the sexual tension, you have to find some other kind of tension, and that means creating some kind of conflict between them for no other reason than creating conflict. And because part of my, this is a spoiler, but I don't count it as a spoiler, which is Gentleman's Guide has a happy ending, like unambiguously happy ending. That was another thing I wanted with happy queers in history. And so if I started writing that second book, I was going to have to mess with that happy ending to create tension. And I didn't want to do that. And I realized that very quickly. And so I pivoted and sheepishly kind of crawled back to my editor with my tail between my legs. I was like, Jinja, you were right about that. And then wrote Lady's Guide had fun with exactly what she said it's almost like in when you write fan fiction how some people do like missing scenes or they do like other points of view it was fun to put in Felicity's point of view on things and see how she thinks about Monty and how she thinks about their parents and what her sort of experience growing up in the same household as Monty was and what kind of damage it left her with and then how she's sort of rectifying that and then the third book was maybe the least likely of all I (laughs) somebody asked me in a fan Q&A what happened to their little brother because in the first book Monty's a bit of a scoundrel and has not had to get his act together for many, many years. And now suddenly he does because his parents have just had another son. And so there's sort of a challenger to his title for the first time in forever. And so somebody asked me if the baby was okay because they're a rough family. And as soon as I got asked that, I couldn't stop thinking about it. And because Adrian's six months old, he kind of only appears through crying through the floorboards in the first book. If I wanted to write about him in a young adult space, it needed to be almost 20 years in the future, which... Yeah, you get asked as an author a lot of the time, what happens to your characters after the book ends? And generally my answer is like, I don't know, that's up to you. My story exists within the confines of the book, but I don't think too much about what happens in either direction of it. That's a lie. I do think about the past, but more for that sort of like iceberg character work. But the future, it's just, I don't know, I kind of leave the characters with the book. And in this case, it was a rare chance to actually look ahead and say, okay, what are they doing? What do they look like in 20 years? But it was also really fun, too, I think, because I'm closer to the age Monty is in Nobleman's Guide than he is in Gentleman's Guide. So it was also fun, though, to write about older characters from kind of a YA perspective, I still got to write that like coming of age story, which is what I love about YA and write about young people deciding what kind of adults they're going to be. And also write about the fact that adults never stop coming of age. We never stop feeling like we're coming of age while also like making jokes about the fact that Monty's like, every morning I wake up and my neck hurts. Is that normal or is that just me getting old? 
That was so interesting. I love hearing the stories. And I think sometimes book publishing can be a bit of a mystery, especially like really successful series. How does that happen? Well, everybody's got a different story. And I think that's so cool that yours is so twisty and turny along with these books. Because these books are just so unique. And I love that your story is too. I totally agree. When I finished Gentleman's Guide a while ago, I also, I saw that the second one was Felicity and I was like, but I think I want to read more about Monty and Percy. I don't know. And then I read, and I was like, oh no, this was the right way. Because you're right. It's so nice that the happy ending gets to stick. You think you do, but you don't. And that's why I think a lot of people struggle, especially with second books and series, is because usually the first book ends with two characters getting together. And you want to do that because in case there isn't a second book, whether your publisher doesn't buy it or it doesn't sell well or something, you want to end with some kind of closure for that romantic subplot. So it ties it up. And then you start the second one and you go, oh, no, no, I don't have the sexual tension between these two characters, so I have to create some kind of tension in their relationship to replace the sexual tension, And which is why I think you read a lot of reviews of second book. It's like, why are these characters not talking to each other? Like, you just had one conversation that would solve everything, and it's like, it's because the writer has written themselves into a corner, okay? You just give them a new person to have problems, and then it's fine, exactly. and then everyone can keep their happy endings. And this book specifically, I loved the character of Adrian. I love that in the first couple of books, he's just like the goblin. He's this (laughs) non-entity, he's like not even a person. But I always thought if we met him, he might not be friendly towards his siblings, just knowing what we do about their parents and about the house that they grew up in, the idea that the kid that actually grows up with the birthright and the privilege might turn out to not be the friendliest. But, oh, I loved Adrian's character so much. You talked a little bit about his anxiety and OCD. And just sort of on a personal note, I sort of struggle with very similar things to what he does. I saw a lot of myself in this book. And I know from your author's note, which, by the way, are some of my favorite parts of your books. I love the author's notes you write at the end. Um, I hear that a lot. And I never noticed that's a compliment or like a kind of a backhanded compliment. The book was fine, but the author's note was spectacular. Like, well, I don't no, know. I just love that you. I just love that you include that information because it always ends up answering questions I had as I was reading. Of, I wonder if this made sense in the timeline, or how real this was, or if these kind of people actually exist. And it's, oh, here's history of it. But in this author's note, you also mentioned that you similarly struggle with mental health issues that Adrian does. Which, reading the book as someone who also does, I was like. There's no way this author is making this up. It's too real (laughs) and specific. There are moments where Adrian is either thinking something or he does something that stems from these thoughts that he has, where I was like, different century, but like I've been there. (laughs) Like, my situation is different because I'm not in the 18th century, but that's what I would have done if I was. And so I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about your experience of writing Adrian as a character and writing these elements that are close to your life into a character in a story in a world that's very different than ours and what that experience was like for you. So all three of these books for me represent different pieces of my identity, identity pieces that many people share that is generally not the characteristics of a historical adventure novel hero or heroine. And often we write this off to the idea that the past was exclusively populated by white straight men or white straight people, which, I mean, I fell into that trap for a long time and studying queer history was incredibly revelatory to me because at the time when I was coming out, I was part of a church organization that was not LGBTQ friendly, accepting, whatever you want to say. And so one way I found to reconcile my own identity with this religion that I grew up in was through finding these stories of people in the past where you know 
that your community is not going to change. The world around you is not going to change, but you also aren't going to change. And I love finding these stories of people who found a way to sort of live in both worlds. And also just the affirmation of knowing that there were people who knew themselves before they had words for it. One of my favorite historical queer people is Anne Lister, who was known as the first modern lesbian. She was a very self-aware lesbian in the early 1800s who there's a great HBO show about her called Gentleman Jack. And she wrote extensive diaries over her lifetime. And in them, she's writing things like, I love only the fair sex and desire no affection but theirs, which just sort of contradicts all these ideas about like sex being different and sexuality being different and the idea of modern queerness not existing in the past. So all of that to say, I wrote each of these books specifically to talk back to a piece of my identity that I had not always found joy in. And Ladies Guide is very much about women, about feminism and history, but also about talking back the people who say, well, she couldn't do that because she was a woman. And it's anachronistic for women to be doctors, for women to be pirates, for women to be single-minded, for women to even consider the idea that they might have rights. But also addressing the sort of like not like other girls concept and my own sort of struggles I've had with ideas about femininity and how in order to be a strong woman, you have to emulate mass, traditionally masculine traits, sort of the internalized misogyny that women deal with. And so when I got to the third book, for some reason, I thought this is going to be, it's not that the first two were easy, but the first two were the historical process was pretty joyful for me. And I loved reading about queer history and I loved reading about women in history. And then I got to writing about mental illness and just kind of shut down. I think part of it is because I'd never, Monty and Felicity, in spite of sharing these elements with me, are very, very, very different characters than I am. And their voices are different and their experiences are different. And Adrian's, I was basically writing my own internal monologue. And I was writing, if I was in this situation, what would I think? And what do my uncontrollable anxiety spiral thoughts feel like? And what do breathing problems relating from anxiety feel like? And it turns out it's really triggering to write about that kind of stuff. And so as I'm writing about anxiety attacks, I'd end up bringing on anxiety attacks. And then also, too, then it opens you up in a weird way to all the critique becomes so much more personal then, because I try not to read reviews, but I just got one from like an actual real publication, like not a Goodreads review, that said something to the effect of Adrian's mental illness is portrayed in such a way that readers who sharing his anxiety will be triggered by this book and readers who don't will find him exhausting. I was like, well, that sucks, because that makes me feel like all my friends either find me triggering or exhausting. So it was a tough process. It was tougher than I thought it was going to be. The book actually ended up getting delayed about a year, largely due to the fact that I was missing deadlines because I found it really, really physically difficult to write this book. And the book's not out yet when we're talking. And I'm absolutely terrified of the critiques that'll come in because I know that they'll come because they always do. And that's part of being a writer. It's part of being a creative person and putting your work out there. But there's this sort of added element of my own personal experience to it. And I think we tend to be a little ingracious as readers, especially when we talk about these elements of identity where we say, okay, so we get really excited when we find another character that has anxiety or OCD or is asexual or bisexual or whatever. And we go, oh, that's how, that's me, that's me too. And I can't wait to read about them. But then if their experience does not line up 100% with your experience, often we write them off as like incorrect or problematic. And I think it's important to recognize that all of these things exist on a spectrum and everyone's going to have a personal relationship with their mental illness, with their sexuality, with their gender. I lost the thread of your question because I got anxious and just started talking about anxiety. <laughs> no, that was incredible. That was perfect. And I will say for me reading your book, and like you said, everyone's experience is different. So I will say that 
the way you wrote his anxiety feels very real. And so I could totally see how writing that would be triggering for you and also potentially reading it might be difficult for me personally. It was that feeling of the only way someone could write this book or that this book could exist is if I'm not totally alone in how my thoughts spiral and the things that I think about and obsess about, which I think is so important. And also for people who don't, like, I've spent a pretty good chunk of my life, as I think a lot of people who struggle with these issues do, of, like, trying to explain to people what it feels like or how your thoughts run out of control. Or, I mean, there are moments in this book where someone's trying to get him to calm down or to see what's rationally in front of him or, or see the facts, and he can't. And it's written from his perspective and so beautifully that it's like, exactly, you just can't see it. You just can't get there. And so for me personally, it was such a powerful book and I really, really enjoyed reading it. And it's something that, I mean, I've done a lot of work in this because I'm obviously in my late 20s. I think as a teenager, this book, though, would also give me that same feeling, even a little bit more of like, oh, it's not not just me. Oh, cool. (laughs) Well, not something that kept me going is because there are times I'll say to people, I have anxiety or I'm feeling anxious about this. And they go, oh, I also have anxiety. And then I explain, okay, oh, so this is how I'm feeling right now. You're going to understand it. And I explain my kind of thought. And then I get this, oh, no, that's too anxious. That's something else. And then you start to feel like, oh, my gosh, am I too anxious even for other people who have anxiety? And for me, I remember the two books that were incredibly revelatory to me in the way I thought about my own mental illness. One was Finding Audrey by Sophie Kinsella. And one was Turtles All the Way Down by John Green. And both of them were books that as soon as I finished them, I immediately started them over. Because the first time I read them, it was just that haze of recognition and just getting the feeling of just being bowled over by the fact that you're like, oh my God, somebody else, somebody else feels this way. A character feels this way, but also a real life person feels this way and understands this and is acknowledging, I am not crazy. I am not a lost cause this is a thing that happens to people and if I can show this main character compassion I owe that same compassion to myself so that thought of hopefully that this book can be that for someone else out there is one of the things that like kind of kept me going when this book got really tough no and I'll say not to spoil anything but really really specifically for me there's a scene involving leeches that people will know when they get to it that really felt like that for me where I was like yep that I for me totally get it Yeah, I know exactly the scene. Again, not to spoil it, but that was an element of my personality that would cause me to do a similar thing to what Adrian does in that scene that I had always had and never understood and then read Turtles all the way down. And she exhibits the same kind of OCD tendencies in that. And it was like, I can remember, I was listening to the audiobook. I remember where I was on the road in my car when I heard this one moment in Turtles all the way down that I just felt like my whole, like the light shifted on my whole life. It was incredible. Fiction is incredible. <laughs> it really is. And I want you to know that yours did that too. Yours had that power for me, for sure. And also, more than anything too, the end of that scene and the way he is treated by his family and the people with him, I thought was also really, really powerful. That, like, he's not called crazy. No one gets mad at him. No one gets frustrated. They just help him handle the situation. And I thought that was absolutely incredible and i'm with you too turtles all the way down was another one if you haven't read turtles all the way down read the montague sibling series and then go read that one (laughs) turtles is another book that i remember talking to friends of mine kind of on both sides of the anxiety spectrum who had read it and i had people who said i couldn't read it because it was too triggering for me because it's such a intense realistic portrayal of the inside of somebody's head when you live with this kind of mental illness 
And then I had people on the flip side that were like, oh, I thought it was, she was just so whiny the whole time and so self-absorbed. So I guess that's part of the territory of writing, <laughs> writing these kind of books. And everyone's going to have their own opinion of it. But no, I think you did it incredibly, incredibly well in this book. And like you were saying at the beginning, and it's still fun. Like, it's still a lot of fun. This has just <laughs> as much, like, swashbuckling adventure as all your other books. It just has this other element that I thought was really powerful. And actually, going on to talk a little bit about how fun your books are, your books are, and I don't say this lightly, but your books are, like, genuinely laugh-out-loud funny. Like, I'll be sitting there reading your book and laughing to myself, and, like, people are looking at me like I'm crazy, and I'm like, you don't understand. These jokes are amazing. (laughs) So I was hoping you could talk maybe a little bit about how you incorporate jokes and humor into your writing, whether it's a natural process that just sort of happens as you're writing the story or an element that kind of you do like a second pass just specifically for jokes or takes a little bit of extra or separate work. And then I'm really curious because I love your book so much. I'm really curious if you have any favorite lines or moments that you think about and you're like, that was a good one. I'm proud of that one. So it's a combination of both of what you mentioned, which part of it is that it's intrinsic to the book. And I mentioned my first book, This Monstrous Thing. The whole thrust of that book is a main character who doesn't have a sense of humor and takes things very, very seriously. And that's his whole his whole thing is that he doesn't know how to take a joke in a lot of ways. And so because of that, I had developed, I think, this idea that like all fiction had to be very serious. And if you wanted to write about serious things, you had to be very serious about it. And so I think the humor in these books really came from the fact that I was writing these books to like lift myself up and to have a good time and to remind myself writing is fun. And part of fun for me is comedy and jokes. Also, I hate this idea of history being all serious people. We're like the first generation to ever mean anything. I also wanted to reflect that. There are lots of things about the past that I wanted to reflect and one of them was that people are not always serious just because they didn't smile in their photographs that had to do with the technology not the lack of humor among the people but it also goes hand in hand with who the characters are so Monty is upfront with his humor he's pretty body with it and you realize that part of it's his personality and that he's just kind of a rascal but part of it is also that he's developed humor as sort of a coping mechanism for trauma and to avoid having to have these serious discussions Felicity's humor is different than Monty's Felicity is very sarcastic every joke she makes is almost a little bit at somebody else expense and often it's at her expense she's very self-deprecating and Adrian is not someone who I think would ever think of himself as being a funny character and most of the humor in Nobleman's Guide or not most of it but a lot of it comes from him playing off of Monty and of their opposite personalities and the way that they're foils for each other it definitely gets punched up in second drafts I never do like a pass just for jokes but they're not sort of my primary concern in the first draft and so I'll always go back and add things I'm trying to think of favorite jokes I can't do an interview without shouting out the audiobooks for these. But I lucked into the greatest audiobooks in the world, and the audiobooks for Gentleman's Guide and Nobleman's Guide in particular are narrated by an actor named Christian Coulson, and he is phenomenal. He's so talented. It, like He has performed these books, but also he and I, I think, have very, very similar senses of humor because he makes jokes out of lines that I did not even think were funny. And he's so great at the humor in particular and delivering these jokes. And so I would highly recommend the audiobook if you really want to get a good laugh. I tell people the audiobooks of these books are the best versions that exist. He's taking everything I was trying to do and then doing it better. And the second one's great. He doesn't narrate the second one, obviously, because it's Felicity, but the narrator for that is equally phenomenal. I like some of the running jokes that develop throughout the series, like Monty being very short and Monty being afraid of water. Like, those are two things that I just kind of threw in as kind of a cute little aside. And then even, like, We Hate Richard Peel is the thing that kind of got thrown in as, like, a, put something here until you think of something better, and then the joke kind of gets bigger and bigger, and then it's Part of the fun, too, of writing a series is 
you get to see what people respond to and then call back to it in a variety of ways. This is kind of a little bit of a tangent, but one of my favorite things was seeing the characters that people responded to, particularly in Gentleman's Guide and Ladies' Guide, and then 20 years later when we visit Adrian and he's sort of meeting his siblings and learning about their lives, what characters get to come back and what characters get to cameo and still be part of it. And there was one in particular who doesn't show up until the very last chapter of the book that was a character I did not even know the fandom was aware of. And then suddenly my lives were flooded with questions. And so it was fun. That one was just like a really, really fun little callback to get to throw in. Oh, I'm trying to think of any of my like favorite, favorite jokes. Some of them I think are funny and I don't know if anyone else does, but I do like the running joke of the Montagues being built like corgi dogs with long torsos and short limbs. That's one of my favorites. I like that one, too. I also really like in this book specifically, there's a bit of a running joke with, I won't say anything more than just it's about the name Veronica. And it's very, very... My mother, my mother just read the book. She also really likes that joke. Well, also, there's just, I intrinsically, and I think it came from the way I wrote the first book, so often the answer I reach for when I'm trying to figure out how to end a scene or how to move on to the next thing, the answer I end up reaching for is like, what is the most ridiculous tropey thing I can do here? So like there's a part in Ladies Guide that I, I've been revisiting Ladies Guide on my Instagram with readers and doing different live chats about it. And I just read a section, I totally forgot there's a part where Felicity literally makes a bedsheet rope to climb out of her window. And I remember that that was the thing. I was like, how would she get out of here? I'm like, oh, well, if it were a tropey, silly adventure novel, she'd make a bedsheet rope and climb out her window. And I was like, this is a tropey, silly adventure novel. And so it's a fun set dressings like that. Like in Nobleman's Guide, there's a fairly serious scene that takes place over an enormous pie, like those kind of things, just reaching for what's the most ridiculous, silly answer in this moment. Yeah, the moments where Monty and Adrian are first interacting, I think readers and fans of the book are going to get exactly what they want because they are very, (laughs) very funny scenes. And Monty is kind of at like the height of his Montiness in those moments. Meeting this brother he never thought he'd run into again. Again, the fun of these books is getting that all through Adrian's eyes is such a different experience because, like, you know Monty and you know right. what he's been through and his life story and everything, but Adrian doesn't. And Adrian's just like, what's wrong with this guy? Right. <laughs> I was a little on? worried. That was a, that was a hard thing to balance because you know more than Adrian does if you've read the first two books. And so it's like, is this going to be boring because it's sort of like, okay, we already know all this. We know all this about Monty. But there ended up being so much comedy and then so much commentary about Monty's character when you see him through Adrian's eyes and when you're getting sort of a clean first impression which we've never gotten of Monty because the first impression you get of Monty is from himself and so we never sort of get to see who he really is we only get unreliably narrated versions of himself so seeing him through Adrian's point of view ended up being a very unique thing it was a lot of fun to read and the moment where you realize when they're going to literally run into each other when it's about to happen edge of my seat needed to finish <laughs> needed to get to the point where you met Monty because okay. I you can like see it coming and it's so great uh-huh. switch gears just a little bit one question I'd really love to ask you because it's something I've always kind of thought about with your books each of your books has a specific adventure quest that they're going on there's sort of like an end destination they're looking to get to and they usually include magical element or maybe like a mythical element I don't want to spoil what this one in the book is but it's definitely there and I would just really love to know what inspired you or why you decided to include this more magical element in a story that set in a world that otherwise feels very very close to our own yeah so I really love historical fantasy as a genre but I like historical fantasy with a lighter touch I don't want historical fantasy that's basically just fantasy 
that occasionally references Queen Victoria, because often I feel like authors fall into the trap then of using that fantasy as an excuse for not doing research. Then you end up with things that, <laughs> I'm trying not to air all my grievances right now with the genre as a whole, but like if your magical element is that there is, say, for example, steampunk cyborgs, that's not going to affect something like when the word okay was first used. But I feel like that kind of stuff ends up being like, well, it's fantasy, so it's okay if we, <laughs> it's okay. So I can use whatever language I want. It's like, no, that's not how that works. So I'm very, very picky about my historical fantasies. And one of my favorite subgenre within that is historical fantasy, where the fantasy element draws from some real superstition or part of history that we now know is not real or has been debunked in some way, but at the time was a commonly held belief. Because there are lots of things in history that we now know and think of as being kind of bogus and being superstitious and magical. But if you went back to that time period, like those were real things that real people believed in. They weren't superstitions. Or even if they were superstitions, there was so much unknown surrounding them. And that's sort of become my favorite thing is going back and looking at these real superstitions from the time period and then imagining what if they were real and what if the characters had to interact with them in some sense. No, that makes total sense because your books, they're kind of like a really fun blend between historical fiction and historical fantasy. Exactly the combination you would want. And I think that's another reason why those author notes at the end are really fun to read because you do get a lot more detail and like history and research from your books than maybe you traditionally think you're going to get from a book that has the more mystical elements. And I always love that too. It makes it more of an adventure that they're going on rather than just a weird road trip. It's, <laughs> it's still a pretty weird road trip. <laughs> It's a fantastic weird road trip, but it's also very going on a quest or an adventure. I always love those in, in any kind of story. Yeah, and they, um, all, they all have kind of a quest element where the characters don't know if the thing they're questing for is even real. And I think that's probably most pronounced in Nobleman's Guide based on the thing they're searching for. And then it's also sort of the most ambiguously magical element. Lady's Guide probably has the least. It's always both a personal and a real thing that they're looking for, too. There are yeah, personal exactly. stakes to whatever it is, which makes it, for sure, more fun. So one of my one of my last questions, obviously, we've gotten three books and three and a half, four-ish. Three and a half. So, yeah, three and a half. That works. But I'm going to be greedy and ask, are we going to see these characters again? Are we going to get any more stories from these guys? I don't think so. I think I'm ready for something new. I am often, as a reader very critical and dismissive of authors who hang out in one fantasy world or in one universe, I guess, for too long. So it would be a hypocritical of me to hang out here longer. But also I think it's healthy to, as a writer and from a craft perspective to start something new and to stop building on the same foundations, but try an entirely new place and time and set of characters with challenges and also, I'm a big believer in leave them wanting more, which I say that as someone who is like, none of these books were supposed to exist, but I'd rather quit while I'm ahead than 15 books from now and everyone's like, enough of it. Well, let me just say, I am very, very grateful that all of these books exist because they are all so much fun. And I think that makes total sense. I guess that also kind of leaves me curious too, like, are you satisfied with where you've left? Well, I mean the whole world, but especially these three characters yeah, I think they all ended up exactly where they needed to be. And well, I'm like choking on spoilers right now. This is hard. See, this is the problem is all the interviews I've done, nobody's asked me these like really specific questions because often people don't read the books they're interviewing you about. So I'm not very well practiced in talking about plot specifics without spoilers. 
I'm very happy with the ending. If I wasn't happy with the ending, I wouldn't have published it, obviously. But I am a big fan of the sort of ambiguous open ending where it's like everything's going to be okay. I'm not going to tell you how it's going to be okay. And I think we actually we see this play out a little bit when you go from the ending of Gentleman's Guide to like where Monty is in the third book. You see that it's okay, but it's not always going to be okay. There's going to be bad things that happen. It's not going to be a guaranteed upward trajectory for the rest of their lives. But I hope that everybody leaves feeling hopeful and optimistic about, if not where all three of the characters are in their lives, the fact that they have each other and that they have this new support system in each other. I love that element. And I loved that for a book that does start with Adrian not even knowing he has these two very awesome siblings out there that we get to a place where not only does he know them, but they're like a big part of his life. I thought that was so beautiful and special for this series to end and for all three of them. Cause I was already attached to Monty at Felicity, but now I'm also attached to Adrian. I'm like, I'm so glad. I'm glad they have each other. One of the main like themes of this series that I'm only realizing now as I talk to you. So forgive me this as I puzzle it out. One of the main themes I think of all the books is learning how to let people love you and learning to believe that people do love you in spite of the things that you think are wrong with you, in spite of the damage you have. And I think that's something that shines through in all three of these books. And so ending on that note too of no matter what happens, we have each other kind of a thing, I think is thematically, I totally meant to do that. I'm a genius, professional writer. That was 100% intentional, and I love it. Yeah, I hadn't realized that either, but you're absolutely right. That is definitely, I think, such a strong thread throughout these books and such a important thing that all three of them get and such a weirdly difficult lesson to learn. Like, even as an adult, there are still moments where that's really, really hard to totally accept, and I love having stories that encourage us to think about that. And I think that's one of the reasons, too, your books are really comforting adventure stories Yeah, there's perils and bad guys and different things that are happening. But in the end, it's really about people who, like, truly love each other and do what's best for each other, even if the people they're helping don't necessarily appreciate it or realize it in the moment, especially when that character is the main character of the book. (laughs) They never never seem to realize when it's their turn. And I love that. It's the best part. And so if we're not going to get any more Montague sibling series books, you have such a cool list of published books because – Along with this series, you've also written books for several of the Marvel characters, including Loki, Gamora, and Nebula. And then you also have, as you mentioned, several nonfiction books. I was wondering if you could both talk about how you select your projects, like sort of where they come from or how you pick the next one. And also, if at all possible, you could give us any hint as to what we might expect next. How I select my project, whatever falls into my lap, it always feels like kind of right place, right time. Like the Marvel contract came around because the editor who I initially worked with at Disney had been pitching this series for years, I guess, saying, let me hire someone to do a YA series about antiheroes in the Marvel Universe. And they just happened to approve the project right at the same time she was reading Gentleman's Guide and really loving it. And so that was very much like a right place, right time kind of a thing. And even with Bygone Badass Frauds, which is one of my nonfiction books, that was something that started because I did a thread on Twitter. I did a bunch of threads on Twitter, and I tweeted about all these different women, and it went viral a couple of times. It got picked up by a couple of different outlets and was, like, on Twitter's homepage one day, and that was sort of just enough attention to then poke publishers into being interested in a book version of it. So I feel like all of my projects have kind of come about through Kismet so far, and I don't know. (laughs) I wonder when my luck is going to run out. But the Marvel stuff is the only thing I have 
under official real contract right now. So you've been stressed this whole interview about spoiling Nobleman's Guide. I am neck deep in my third Marvel book and have a Marvel sniper red dot on my forehead at all times if I talk about who the third book is about. And I have come so close. That's one of the weird things about writing is that you finish a book and then it comes out like a year later. And so by that point, you're already on to something else. So you're talking about something you haven't thought about in a year. And you're also like so engrossed in researching and working on something else that sometimes I'm like, okay, but also can we talk about this instead? I know it's not related, but I promise in like six months, you're going to understand why I really want to talk about this. So I have been in a cold panic for every interview I've done for this book when they say what's up next, but I'm going to like Tom Holland this whole thing. But I am doing one more book for Marvel and it's about <laughs> selecting our words so carefully. It is about another anti-hero in the Marvel universe. That's all I can say, because one time I gave slightly more information than that, thinking it was totally innocuous, and my publicist was on the interview with me for Marvel, and she had been muted the whole time, and suddenly her voice just like came out of nowhere, and she was like, you can't print that the article. <laughs> like, oh, God. <laughs> I have one more book with Marvel that is also about an anti-hero in the Marvel universe. That's the answer. <laughs> Perfect. I love it. Also, I love that Tom Holland is a verb now. <laughs> like, I'm going to Tom yeah, yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows what I you're talking about. Or, yeah, it's either you Tom Holland it or you Mark Ruffalo it, which means while I'm writing my book out loud, I live stream 15 minutes of it from my pocket. <laughs> that would be impressive. <laughs> that would be very weird. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things that ever happens. And yeah, I can only imagine how scary it must be doing anything for Marvel at all. Yeah, in terms of levels of secrecy within Marvel, I am the lowest security clearance. <laughs> it still just sends me into a flop sweat every single time I have to talk about it. And the other problem, so I love stuff. I describe myself as a maximalist. So if I love something, I want 10 t-shirts about it. I want the books. I want the everything. And the problem with Marvel is that because there is so much merchandise, when I start really getting into these characters, and I did this like with Loki, and I did this with Gamora Nebula, though there's less swag for them, but with the Loki stuff, when I was deep into Loki, I was like, I have to buy every Loki piece of merch that exists. And so if you'd come over to my house for five minutes, you would have been able to guess who my Marvel book was about. And now with the third one, if you come over to my house for five minutes, you would know exactly who it's about because the detritus of the fandom is just scattered around my apartment. <laughs> that is amazing. Marvel must be thrilled. <laughs> They're just like, make, we're making a nice chunk of change off of this. <laughs> I was going to say, I'm going back my entire advance just in the merchandise I'm buying. But it's like when you write young adult original fiction, there's not a ton of merchandise for the Montagues out there. Some very cute people have made stickers, and I have bought all those stickers, and I love them. The fact that there's already merchandise, very exciting as a writer. <laughs> there's got to be some Montague sibling t-shirts or something out there, like Etsy. The fan base is too strong. There's some really cute fan art that has been turned into mugs and like on Redbubble where you can order it or Society Fix where you can order it on anything. And I own a couple of those. I just got art from an artist for our Ladies Guide read-along, the little stickers of Felicity, Johanna, and Tim. And they're so darling. And then I have on my laptop at this very moment a sticker from an artist in Russia, which is crazy to me that people in Russia have read this book, that they made a little Monty and Felicity Corgi that are sitting next to each other. So there's Monty Corgi looking very happy and Felicity Corgi with her tiny little pink nose spectacles looking very grumpy and it's pretty delightful. <laughs> 
That's incredible. That's amazing. And final thing, but I will say, I don't know if it was a joke or you just really needed to get it out there, but at the very, very end of your book, mentioning that you don't have the numbers for the cover models and you can't (laughs) offer them, I was like, I wonder how often people are like, can I meet him? Legitimately, the most asked question I get is about the cover model of The Gentleman's Guide. I put it on my website finally that I was like, please don't email me about who is this person because A, I don't know. But B, based on the different mock-ups of the cover I saw, I'm pretty sure it's actually three people with their faces photoshopped together. Like, I don't think he exists because I saw him in varying states of different eyes and different nodes. And so I think people are literally trying to, like, Pygmalion this photoshopped cover model into existence when he does not exist. And so I hate to break everyone's heart, but not information I have. Though also there are a fair amount of particularly queer women who are very into Felicity on the cover of Ladies' Guide. One of the earliest reviews of Ladies' Guide on Goodreads was, I want Felicity on the cover to stab me, which I think is a sexy kind of (laughs) They said it in a way that it was good. (laughs) I love that you included that. I was just like, it's like one final laugh at the very, very end of the book. Fantastic. I get it out there. Cards all on the table. Absolutely. Well, this was so much fun. I could keep talking for a while, but we should probably wrap it up. You just tell our listeners where they can learn more about you and your books. I'm at the Mackenzie Lee on Instagram, which is the, and then Mackenzie, M-A-C-K-E-N-Z-I-L-E-E, the Mackenzie Lee. My website is just MackenzieLee.com. There's links to all of my stuff there and more about me and also pictures of dogs I love. The book should be available wherever books are sold. If you would like signed copies of any of my books ever, standing offer, though it's most related to Nobleman's Guide right now, my local independent bookstore is the King's English Bookshop in Salt Lake City, and you can always order signed copies from them. I'm always happy to sign any of my books from them, and they do ship internationally, too. I love authors pairing up with their local bookstores. I think that's such a great pairing. I take it a step farther because I actually work at the King's English. And I've been a bookseller for, I was a bookseller in Boston when I lived back there, and then I work at the King's English. And you didn't ask, but I'm going to tell you anyway, there is no good way to hand sell your books to someone in the bookstore if you have any transaction as a bookseller that involves your own books. Like I've had, I had a woman come in pretty recently and she had a dog with her and she was like tying it up outside and I stuck my head out the door and I was like, bring your dog inside. Like we love dogs. And she brought her dog in and petting the dog and I was like laying on the floor with her dog giving him treats there's this like nice 10 minute discussion about dogs and then I finally picked myself up off the floor and I was like oh you actually came in here for books can I help you find anything and she said yeah I'm looking for the gentleman's guide to vice and virtue and I was like uh you have to ask someone else about that and I ran into the break room and then one of the other booksellers came out came and found me I was like you nutcase like what and then the one or two times that I've tried, like one time there was like a 10 or 11 year old boy looking at Loki because I'm in the kids room a lot of the time and Loki was there and he was looking at it. And I was like, I'm going to blow this kid's mind. And so I walked up to him and I was like, you want to know something cool about that book? I wrote that book. And he just literally went, oh, and then put it back on the shelf and walked away. Well, that didn't work. There's no good way to do it. It's an interesting point of view that not many authors yeah, that has to be so interesting, like, seeing people purchase your book and, like, seeing, like, who comes in to purchase your book, if they find it on the shelf or if they're coming in specifically. You, like, learn so much about the people who are reading your book. Well, and I worked at a bookstore in Boston called Porter Square Books, and there was another gentleman on the staff with me who was also an author, and he had a totally different approach where one time 
somebody was buying a whole stack of books and it had his book in there. And so he's just scanning them like automatically. He hardly even pauses and he just points to his book and he goes, do you want me to sign this for you? And the woman looks at him for a minute and then she goes, did you write it? <laughs> There's some preliminary information here. So we, I have yet to find the sweet spot. Oh, that's amazing. Thank you so much for being on with us today. This was seriously so much fun. I'm such a huge fan. This was such a like dream come true to get to talk to you about these books. I'm really excited for everyone to get to read them. By the time this comes out, it should be available. So if you've been waiting for this book like I have, go get it. And if you haven't read any of these books, I don't know what you're waiting for. Go get a gentleman's guide to vice and virtue. Start reading. You're going to love it. If you're waiting for the series to be complete, you have no excuse now. It's your time. Exactly. Because that's a real thing. I didn't realize, but people really do do that. So, yes, it is complete. Go get it. You will not be sorry. They are absolutely incredible. And it was so much fun to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Of course. And thanks to all of you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter. We're at BookmarkedYA. You can also follow Bookstacked on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if you like the show, don't forget to leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow me on Instagram. I'm at Plucky Bookmark. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.